0: Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org, or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. I have a few. Did I turn myself on there? Yep. I have a few. Uh, just an introductory thought, really, before we pray and get into uh, the scriptures and this um, uh, the theme for our sermon today. Here it is. I want you to imagine a scene. Your new neighbour, new neighbour from over the fence. One lovely sunny afternoon. Not so hard to imagine today, sort of, a bit harder yesterday. Easy to imagine the day before though, right? What a spectacular day. Your new neighbour from over the fence, one lovely sunny afternoon out in your backyard, asks you this wonderful question. So, what's the Old Testament all about then? And you know a few things. You know um, that he, that she... Uh, doesn't know very much about Christianity. So, this is a basics kind of question and essentials. Hasn't been a churchgoer, doesn't identify as a Christian. Uh, you know that much. You know that she doesn't appear to be in any kind of a rush. So, you've got an opportunity here, right? You, you, get, you get to give a good answer for once. And you know that you want to get to Jesus, all right? Somehow you know that even though, yes, Jesus isn't named in the Old Testament, yes, He doesn't appear in the Old Testament, um, you know that the Bible is one big book, it's got, it's one big story, it's about one big plan of God, the whole thing beginning to end. You know that you want to get to Jesus but what exactly is that overall story? Look then, a very similar question crops up a few weeks later. Uh, there's been a family tragedy uh, in their lives and they're reeling from all of that and the question comes over the fence, so what does the Bible actually say about death? And then a few years on, you see, uh, as they're trying to navigate their daughter's teenage years and they're frankly at a total loss, just like the rest of us, uh, what about sex? What does the Bible say about sex and life and, and all of that? Does it have any ideas then your neighbour has some good years, Uh, praise the Lord, successful years, they renovate the kitchen, they add on that extension, they seem to have bought a rather nice new car in the driveway, they look like they're doing pretty well. So, what what does the Bible have to say about the finer things in life? Or loneliness at a different season, or politics depending on what's in the news, or idols, idolatry, you know they take that trip to Thailand, that family trip to Thailand or or the, the sun takes up yoga or whatever, what does the Bible say about idolatry? Or the, the environment, you know they're trying to fight the war on waste, what does the Bible say about the environment? How do you reckon you'd go? All of those sunny afternoons, standing in your backyard, what's the Bible all about? What does it say about death and idols and politics and all of the rest? Now, my favourite short answer to the big question, what is the Bible all about? My favourite short answer is, I say that the Bible is about the story of the Kingdom of God. It is the one story, that is the one story that unfolds right across every page of Scripture, from beginning to end, unfolds across the pages of the Bible, the story of God's people living in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. It is the story of the Kingdom of God, from beginning to end and climaxing in Jesus. The Bible charts that story from the garden, if you like, through to the city, from the garden in Genesis to the city in Revelation. Uh, From creation... To recreation, it's the story of the Kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, under God's rule. It's the, the story of the Kingdom of God whose heart and centre is the good and loving King, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if I'm asked about death or politics or uh, whatever it is, a sacrifice or sex, I, I ask myself, well, where does that theme fit within that grand story of the Kingdom of God, of God's people in God's place, living under God's rule? Where does that theme fit in, feature, how does it develop across the story of the whole Bible? Now folks, this month, here's what I'm trying to do in these sermons, I said that they'd be slightly different, my plan is to take one theme each week, and work out, model how to trace its unfolding across the entire Bible storyline, right? Bit of a different way to approach a sermon. Uh, From beginning to end, can we develop together, can we learn together a way to answer the question, what does the Bible say about your neighbour's favourite topic from over the back fence? And uh, hopefully develop an answer that is rich enough for our own hearts, that is, rounded enough to include those darker, more difficult, more complicated, sadder and harder parts of Scripture, we read one of them just now, that's reusable enough so that you might actually stand a chance of remembering it when you're standing in your backyard. Today, we're going to start with the theme of sacrifice. Sacrifice sacrifice. Shall we pray together and then let's come to God's Word, let's pray. Father God in Heaven, in Your mercy to us um, personally, You've led us to an encounter with Jesus in the Gospel that has turned our lives around and we know, O God, that Christ is the Saviour of all people, He is the only name by which we Or our neighbour or our best friend or our spouse or our children, He's the only name by which we must be saved. And we know that Jesus is the heart of your saving plan and the very heart of the Bible, but Father, we confess that many of us, much of the time, we do find the Scriptures challenging, cumbersome, even difficult. To navigate and figure out. Added to that, we confess that none of us has the love, that ardent love for Your Word, that passion to meditate on our God's Word. None of us has the love for Your Word that we should have, even though it's the Word of our devoted Heavenly Father, our Lord and our God. Oh God, this morning, would You please firm up our grasp on the totality, the wholeness of Your Word... And enrich our souls in the process together. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, So, by the way, if that whole Kingdom of God, God's people in God's God's place, under God's rule, is new to you, if that's news to you, can I recommend a couple of books to you? I've only got one sitting here. Uh, This one's Vaughan Roberts' God's Big Picture. Uh, It's great, this is my copy, you're welcome to borrow it. Uh, The other one I'd recommend is Graham Goldsworthy's According to Plan, according to plan, just helping us get a handle on the whole of Scripture, the big picture of Scripture. Um, Today, I've got eight points, here we go, strap in, eight points, our theme is sacrifice. Um, So, let's begin here, did God intend, was it part of God's original pattern for life in this world, that sacrifice... Would be part of the deal. Right, we're starting beginning and then moving to the end. Was it part of God's intention that sacrifice would be part of the deal? Was the Garden of Eden life the sacrificing life? Is our earthly life supposed to be the sacrificial life? And to that, I think we have to say, the pattern for human life in the very beginning, right back at the very start, well, no, we didn't. It wasn't intended that we make sacrifices and blood and animals and all of that kind of altars and all of that kind of thing. And yet, yes garden life, original life, untainted human existence, did have an element of, how would you put it, the unselfish about it. It certainly wasn't a self-serving life, in that sense it was a self-giving, can you say, self-sacrificial life, in that sense. Uh, Come with me please, if you're following along on your lap, Genesis chapter 1, but it will come up on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, where we read, God blessed them, that is the man and the woman, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground and perhaps you're thinking that doesn't sound very self-sacrificing, it sounds like the birds and the uh, you know fish and everything might have to do a bit of sacrifice, no but far from a self-sacrificing serving, rule over, far from a self-absorbed, fill the earth and subdue it. No, no, it wasn't self-absorbed and self-serving, what was the pattern for their ruling and working and increasing? If you look down a little further to chapter 2 and verse 15, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and take care of it. There's the pattern. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Care and give, that was the pattern, just as God cared for and gave to his man and woman in the garden in the beginning. But know this, death will come the moment that you turn from... Self giving and caring to self serving and seeking, self ruling. You live in my kingdom, Adam and Eve. Point two no longer the pattern of the kingdom. It didn't go so well, did it? But now the perished kingdom. And by the way, all of these P's, as there's eight of them, uh, come from this book, very helpful. This is the God's Big Picture, Vaughan Roberts book, um, if you'd like to chase it down afterwards and remember all of the P words. So what comes after the pattern of self-giving life that we see in the Garden of Eden? It perishes. Now, some of the more creative, uh, can I say, interpreters, I guess, of our Bibles, uh, wonder if the very first sacrifice actually in the pages of Scripture, might be the one recorded in chapter 3 verse 21 of Genesis. Maybe that is the first sacrifice that we read in the Bible. Um, So, after the man and the woman, what do they do? They make their terrible rejection of God a reality and they turn to serve themselves and rule themselves. God confronts them, doesn't He, in curse and in judgment there in the garden as He's walking in the cool of the day. The pattern begins to come apart at the seams... And what is the very next thing? Is it a sacrifice of sorts? Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we read this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He's in the process of expelling them from the Garden of Eden, you see. And we're used to reading those verses, that verse in particular, that action of God, we see it, don't we? We see it as an act of grace. Look at God, even towards sinners who have just turned their back on Him, look at Him, reaching out to them in kindness and yet clothing them, reaching them in their sin and shame and caring for them, this grace towards sinners. But do you see how it might also plug into a theme of sacrifice, where did God get the skins? Do you see? What a terrible thought that Adam and Eve stand by as God clothes them in death. A life is sacrificed perhaps before their very eyes, I don't know, the text doesn't say. For sinners who have turned their back on God, on the ways that He had called them to and now they learn the cost of their ways, the cost of their God continuing to care for them Now, is that the first sacrifice in the Bible? I'm not sure about that interpretation, it maybe it's a little too imaginative, you know, maybe some sometimes, you know, Bible commentators, they get a little bit too creative but I'm confident of this, human nature, ever since then, uh, human nature turns even the pursuit of God, not into a matter of selfless devotion, uh, self-giving, God-honouring but into a game of jealous self-service, self-interest that bubbles out of the human heart. How do I know that? A couple of verses later, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 2, what do we meet there in terms of sacrifice? Now Abel kept flocks, I mean halfway through verse 2 of Genesis chapter 4, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil, that's the sons of Adam and Eve. In the course of time, Cain... Brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. What did Cain do? So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And you know the story from there, don't you, brothers and sisters? Rather than Cain delighting in the success of his brother, his brother's successful sacrifice, uh, rather than striving to see the face of God for himself, Cain would rather sacrifice the life of his own brother and Abel's blood, of course, then cries out to the Lord from the ground. Oh, a thirst for sacrifice is alive and well among the human race. Here's the pattern, I will sacrifice your life so that I don't have to feel uncomfortable about mine. So, the pattern of the Kingdom, the Kingdom well and truly perished and yet thirdly, the Kingdom promised... Uh, so, we're used to hearing about God's promises, where do they kind of really start to begin? Well, I suppose Noah, but uh, we're usually thinking about them in terms of Abraham, don't we? But have you ever noticed this? As much as God promises to Abraham, uh, people and land and blessing, where exactly in the story of Abraham's life does God seem to have any plan to deal with the darkness of the human heart, to deal with sin in Abraham's life? Well, could this be it? Come with me to the verses we read um, just before, or actually just before that, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to Abraham, uh, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. And we know the story, don't we? We read the chilling story of Abraham's trust of the God whose character Abraham barely seems to even grasp in that chapter. We see troublingly extreme dedication to the Lord. If you've read that story only once, oh, you remember it, I bet. Verse 10, then he reached out his hand, Abraham did, and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. But what is the lesson for Abraham on that day? Are you familiar enough with the story? Do you remember it from when Gary read it to us before? It isn't, it isn't you see, just a bare lesson about trust, you just need to trust God because, keep reading, there's something in this story about sacrifice for us, brothers and sisters. Abraham, verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son and so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What is the picture that we were able to put together so far? The Bible is charting a story of a God who calls human beings, humans like you and me, to live thoroughly, given, self-sacrificial kind of lives, where we're not living for ourselves and ruling our lives for ourselves, we're living under His good rule for the good and care of those and the world around us. We uh, see here a story of a God who calls a life forfeit and death when it has become infected with selfish, self-serving, becomes a self-centred life but who calls to us, our God calls to us with this truth, He will carry the cost of a self-serving life. On the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide. The kingdom patterned, the kingdom perished, the kingdom promised. So, did God's children then experience a God who provides the sacrifice for them, who deals with the darkness of the human hearts? Did they finally get back to their place with God just as it was in the very beginning? And the answer is well, partially. you have to squint a little bit as the story of the Bible goes on. So if we come across to say Exodus chapter 12, we see some more of the theme there, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1, where we read, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household, down at verse 6 take care of uh, those lambs until the 14th day of the month when all of the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, do you remember the story, and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of their houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Uh, Verse 11, eat it in haste, it is the Lord's. Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt.' God did it for one man, you see, Abraham and his son Isaac. God now does it for every family amongst the people of Israel, the Passover. In time, we'll see, as the story rolls on, God does it for the entire nation, with the sacrificial system, His judgment, passing over His people, the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial system at the temple, the altars and the blood and all of the rest. God did it for one man and one family, for the whole nation, And yet I say partially, partially because while God, yes, God does provide the sacrifices, God does provide a way for these self-absorbed human beings very much like us to yet come back to Him, enjoy His presence and the rest, we get hints that everyone knows an animal's life can't pay for the perverse evil of the human heart. Everyone knows an animal's life can't do that we get, well, more troublingly than just hints, is all of this sacrificing actually fixing the human heart? No matter how much stuff or animals I sacrifice in my life, can it fix what's in here? Think of some of the uh, darker moments in the Old Testament's sacrificing history, you think of Jephthah who idiotically sacrifices his own daughter because he thinks it's going to please God somehow, Judges 11. What kind of God does Jephthah think God is? What kind of direction is sacrifice going in? Malachi, right at the end of the Old Testament, laments the fact that God's people, they're just trying to buy God off with their sacrifices and then to smooth things over with God, they bring Him an animal for a sacrifice One that they were going to put down anyway, actually. So, Malachi chapter 1, verse 8, we read, when you bring, this is what sacrifices come to, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor, this is what Malachi chapter 1 says, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? And perhaps friends, we should call to mind all those times when we gave God so much less than our best in this life and begrudgingly at that. In fact, in Malachi, it's slightly worse because the Israelites, they actually really make themselves out to be little martyrs the whole time. So, they, they, um, uh, they, they carry on living the life that they wanted to live anyway, then they rock up to the temple with animals that they were going to put down anyway and say, there, God will be happy with that my little sacrifice to Him and then they make it out like it's this, oh God, what a burden it is to have to serve you and jump through your hoops. We have to give you all of these precious animals to make you happy. You see, the the impression I get across the, the story of sacrifice in the Old Testament is that sure, in our modern world, times may have changed, habits may have changed, rituals and rites may have changed but the human heart, has it really changed? When God calls for our hearts, hearts of generous and selfless love and He finds us making ourselves little martyrs out of the meagre offerings that we give our God in our lives. Hosea 6 verse 6 captures it well, where God is speaking, He says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So, the pattern of the Kingdom, well and truly perished, yet still promised, the Lord will provide. But we only ever see a partial fulfilment of it across the pages of uh, the Old Testament. Please turn with me, would you please, to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, because it is precisely as the cracks are starting to open up in this partial fulfilment of of, uh, the hopes of the people of God, it is just as the cracks are opening up and just as the, the dream of God being with His people is really starting to come apart. Does God then tone His promises promises down? Does God just get a little bit more realistic about what He can ever expect to bring to this wayward world that He's made? If anything, God ramps it up in glorious promise. So the uh, pattern of the Kingdom now perished, yet promised, but only partially seen, and yet, at the very same time, the prophesied Kingdom, Isaiah 53, in words that you know very well, I'm sure. Um, So the Lord's servant... Um, who was yet to come, but it speaks of him in the past tense, the Lord's servant, Isaiah 53, uh, verse 5, but he was pierced, he was pierced, this servant character. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Come down to verse 10 with me. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And you might be scratching your head and wondering how... how how does that even, how could God be pleased all of a sudden? You know, you've got this Old Testament prophecy and you've got this servant character and he's about to be crushed according to the Lord's will, how could God be pleased all of a sudden with a man, with a human life, standing in the place of His people? This is the same God, the same God who so abhorred human sacrifice throughout history, he was the one who stayed Abraham's hand there and provided the ram in the thicket, he is the one uh, in the thicket, he is the one who brought judgment on nations who practiced human sacrifice, because they had become so depraved, preached against human sacrifice with his prophets. How can this be the same God? And friends, I don't think that the people in Isaiah's day would have been able to necessarily articulate an answer. They wouldn't, be, wouldn't necessarily been able to come up with an answer that, no, God is the one coming into the world. You know, we all immediately think of Jesus, don't we? But here's what they heard, they heard a servant will come, one who bears your sin and mine, one who doesn't stray and wander in the kind of lives that we've carried on with. A servant will come and the Lord, yes, will crush him, a sacrifice, And offering a punishment to bring us peace. Um, Vaughan Roberts, he has this very helpful picture, right, some of these pictures of prophecy, they're a little bit confounding as to how exactly they would have been understood in their day and what we uh, should do with them. Vaughan Roberts has this very helpful picture with all of this kind of prophecy stuff, he says, uh, one writer draws an analogy with a father a century ago, okay, a father a century ago. Who promises his young son that he'll give him a horse on his 21st birthday, right? Father promises the son a horse on the 21st birthday. Cars were subsequently invented and so, when the birthday finally comes around, the boy is given a car instead of a horse. The promise has still been fulfilled but not literally. The Father could not have promised His Son a car because neither could have understood the concept. Of course, God does understand the concept, God knows exactly what's coming, but you see the analogy. The Father could not have promised His Son a car because neither could have understood the concept. In a similar way, God made His promises to Israel in ways they couldn't understand. So, in ways they could understand because they couldn't understand the car. In ways they could understand, He used categories they were familiar with, such as the nation, the temple, material prosperity in the land. To expect a literal fulfilment is to miss the point. To look for direct fulfilment of, say, Ezekiel in the 21st century Middle East, is to bypass and short-circuit the reality and finality of what we already have in Christ, as the fulfilment of those great assurances. And he concludes, it is like taking delivery of the motor car but still expecting to receive a horse. How are we to hold together the prophecies of the Old Testament with how they take shape in Christ? The Kingdom prophesied. God ramps up these expectations for His people. So, in our journey across the Scriptures, across the Bible, we now start to recognise the motor car, so to speak, when it finally arrives. John chapter 1, verse 29 John the Baptist speaking, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see the horse now? What do we see in Christ? We see in Christ a man who lays down his life but doesn't make himself a martyr. We see the Lord who will provide the sacrifice to clothe his people in. We see in Christ a man who gave his life for the Lord but he didn't do it to buy God off or get God off his back. We see in Christ a man who emptied his very life for us, not just a human sacrifice, our God sacrificing for us but without an ounce of begrudging or moaning or holding it over us. Luke chapter 23 When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified Him. Along with the criminals, one on His right, the other on His left, Jesus said, Father forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I'm in verse 34, and they divided up His clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at Him. Uh, looking for a horse, weren't they? He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Brothers and sisters, that's what the Bible story trains our hearts to long for, isn't it? Our God who meets a self-absorbed, sinful mankind with a sacrifice That is worth our very lives and yet spares us from our own deaths. You need not die, you need not despair, you need not fear that your own self-centred heart will have the final word in your life. Why? Because we proclaim Christ. For you know that it was not with perishable things, 1 Peter chapter 1, It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him and so your faith and your hope are in God. And so finally, may I leave us... With this hope, that you, brother or sister, my fellow believers whose hearts, even now, have a hard time learning to be centred on anything other than ourselves, (laughs) whose hearts have a hard time learning to sacrifice even small things in this life, my dear brothers and sisters, like me, whose lives bear a poor resemblance to the living sacrifice that Christ calls us to in the Gospel would have us become for the sake of His Kingdom in this world. May I leave us with this sure hope that one day we'll have not only the words, the theory, the ideas, but also the hearts to sing this very song from Revelation chapter 5 and they sang a new song, verse 9, you are worthy, referring to Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, You purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, sovereign Lord of eternity, God over all creation our self-giving God who withheld not His own Son for us and for our salvation. Father, what do we know of sacrifice? Occasionally, we glimpse the beauty of a life lived for others and we return to our self-absorbed ways, blind very often to the cause of the Gospel, blind to the people around us, blind to the severity of our own evil ways, God you made us for so much more. We see it in the pattern, in the Garden of Eden, we see it fallen apart through human history and yet we see your promises, we hear them, we yearn for them, we look upon your prophecies and we see them present in Christ, proclaimed in our very ears, perfected in our hope. Would you please inspire us afresh, O God, with the Kingdom present in Christ, the stories of His self-sacrificial life. Would you move us, please, to proclaim Him? Would you assure us of the Kingdom perfected and still to come, the Kingdom where you have provided for us and your ways are love. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.